Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Ben Masters is in the news in Texas. Uh, he is a part of the Texans for Mountain Lions Coalition. And being who we are at Blood Origins, I wanted to have a conversation with Ben and an individual on the other side, Greg Simons, and you'll hear his podcast uh, later, or actually he's going to follow this podcast today. Ben Masters is a phenomenal filmmaker. If you haven't seen the film Deep in the Heart, I would highly suggest you see it. Phenomenal, phenomenal footage. In the film, he tackles mountain lions and specifically tackles trapping as a mechanism by which mountain lion populations are in peril. And so I wanted to have a conversation with him about that. I wanted to ask him about anecdotal evidence. I wanted to ask him his viewpoints moving forward. And if he truly was anti-hunting or anti-trapping, as some of the rhetoric is saying he is. So here we go. Go. All right, so as promised, brother. As promised. You said to me, Robbie... You need to watch Deep in the Heart before we have this conversation. I was like, all right, let me go find it. Let me go find it. And that was, what, three weeks ago? Um, 
where we had previously scheduled and then we pushed back and um i went on the road couldn't didn't have time to find it or watch it or whatnot and then i podcasted with greg simons yesterday fortuitously and i said greg it's actually quite appropriate that i'm having your conversation now and then i'm having ben's conversation tomorrow and in between i'm going to watch this film and i watched it last night and i texted you me hugged up in my beautiful blanket. I hope you appreciated my uh, wife's blanket that I was under. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice it. What was on it? Oh, thank you. I don't want... No, that's fine. I'm looking that's, now. I appreciate you not even... No, don't. <laughs> don't. And, um, and my oldest watched a little bit of it. And he was like, man, this is some cool stuff here. And my oldest is 10 years old and big into robotics and engineering and, and science and whatnot. And he wants to watch it again tonight. So we're going to watch it again tonight, by the way. Nice. Love it. What was his favorite um, sequence? He just, he's just a, he just likes nature. He likes being outside. So it wasn't like one thing was like, oh, that was, you know, like the snakes. He just, he loves snakes. He didn't get a fright at the snake part. Um, but yeah, the ocelot footage that you have. And knowing a little bit about wildlife I'm not a wildlife documentarian by no stretch of the imagination, but knowing, you know, being involved in trail camera surveys from science perspective and wildlife management perspective, number one, you aren't using trail cameras. I know that <laughs> for a fact. <laughs> Two, the angles that you have set your, your, your camera traps, whatever they look like. And now, if I remember correctly, I think on your Insta story, you showed like a little, like a Pelican box that you had created that you put like a full on Sony camera inside of it. Yeah, so for our, for our camera traps, what we used for that film was these homemade uh, pelican boxes that have a little lens port on the front. There's a computer inside of it that has a receiver, and then there's these laser beam brakes that made by Cognosys. And when the animal walks through the beam, it sends a radio transmitter to the computer inside of the pelican case, which tells the camera to turn on. Uh, we used uh, Panasonic GH5S camera bodies. Turns on and it begins recording. But what's so cool about them is you can have different focal lengths and you can also have multiple cameras looking at the same area. So Operated can, by the same computer? Uh, no, they're all separate, but they all connect oh, to okay, the same okay. transmission signal that comes off the, off the, mm -hmm. the laser beam break. Mm -hmm. So you can have multiple angles filming the same thing which allows you to kind of cut a sequence like that together yeah, it's awesome. and, and get these creative angles and yeah it's it's so much fun there's a guy in the uk that makes him named nick turner and he's just this nerd that lives in his shed and there's like 70 of them in the world and uh yeah it's cool it's super exciting because you know for the first time we get to see this kind of really fascinating mm -hmm. animals and behaviors and mm -hmm. yeah i'm mm -hmm. totally addicted to it yeah, it was it was it was incredible. Uh, obviously, the ocelot stuff is. Uh, has anybody captured better footage than you have on ocelots? To my knowledge, that is the first quality video ever taken of an ocelot in the United States, and we ended up getting I think around fifteen hours of daytime footage of ocelots, and we're able to just hone in on not only kind of where they lived, but the trees that they like to hang underneath and the trails that they like to use and then we just you know 
got incredibly lucky and were able to get, um, were able to find this mother who had recently had kittens and to be able to document that first year of her life um, and to get to kind of see what it takes for this critically endangered, super beautiful cat to, to raise their young. Um, so much so that we had way too much footage for the film and we're going to be coming out with a, another movie this November called American Ocelot that'll be a deeper dive into you know, why the species was extirpated across much of its range and the hope that we have of what I consider to be one of the most exciting conservation opportunities that we have of, of our generation in the sense that we have potentially tremendous amounts of available habitat for this animal mm -hmm. to be reintroduced mm -hmm. into. And what's nice about ocelots compared to a lot of endangered species is there's a big source population that we can draw animals from. You know, they're very common uh, in Tamaulipas, Mexico, just south of us, you know, very yeah, yeah. similar type of habitat. So there's potential, you know, for the recovery, which is extremely exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, Ben Masters, uh, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Um, you've caused quite a controversy in Texas in the last couple of weeks. That That's an understatement? Overstatement? <laughs> um, I mean, I... I would say that it's probably an, an accurate statement. Uh, I don't know if it's an over or understatement, but accurate you know, whenever you deal with controversial topics, uh, controversy and topics happens. that people are passionate about, right? Yeah, and it's and it's good that that these topics are controversial because it shows that people really care about wildlife. And you know what a shame it would be if nobody had controversy around wildlife at all and we were all just apathetic towards it so i think it's good but you know i've dealt with like wild horse issues in the past and compared to mm. like the wild horse activists and that <laughs> that um the passions that are Run surrounded around that topic mountain lions in texas seems uh you know much more civil yeah no, I look, and I think the first time we we actually interacted was after I watched your Mustang film, and um, the sense of adventure. I didn't grow up in the U.S. and I didn't have any semblance to what the Mustang actually meant to you know the cowboy pride and heritage. And when I watched, it, I was like, "Damn, that was that was amazing! What an epic adventure!" Um, and I could see the same thing in all of the footage that came out of Deep in the Heart. Like, what a deep dive into the heritage of wildlife in the state of Texas. Yeah, man, it's been a dream come true to get to make a wildlife movie about your home state. And uh, I learned so much. I, I walked away with it with a tremendous greater appreciation for how cool Texas is because you grow up here and you kind of take it for granted and it's not until you kind of step back and then look at it from a third person perspective and try to tell the story of your own home. Do you realize how unique and special of a place it is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The ocelot thing is, is fascinating in that. And you mentioned this in the film and I, and I, and I want to start here because I think part of the conversation or maybe a lot of the conversation will come from things mentioned in the film and, and people sort of, are throwing accusations out there um and since i already podcast with greg and and i think you know this already they feel like there's this braid that has happened between the film and the petition and texans for mountain lines 
And so in terms of, of, I'll start with the ocelots because that was a point that, um, that came out in the film and you just mentioned it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there's phenomenal opportunities for expansion and growth of that population in the South Texas area. The problem is, as I see it, and I'd love to get your opinion here, and maybe that's why they're flourishing in Mexico and not flourishing in the U.S., is we have this thing called the Endangered Species Act that almost handcuffs private landowners when an animal is found on their property to what they can and cannot do versus where I would see the, the, the partnership, which is it's almost like this synergistic relationship in that they want the animal on the landscape, but they still need to be able to do what they do on the landscape, but have this almost lens of how can we do the thing that we do that is cognizant of this ocelot habitat or ocelot being on the landscape. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to get a little historical perspective on ocelots before we dive into some of the controversies surrounding the Endangered Species Act and some of the challenges of bringing back and recovering the animal. So if, if you're not familiar with ocelots, we're talking about a extremely widely geographically distributed cat that extends all the way from South America through Central America into Texas and historically ranged into like Southern Arkansas and Western Louisiana. Mm -hmm. They like really forested areas, you know, really thick type habitats. So in Texas, historically, they were found on a lot of our really thick river bottoms. They were found mm -hmm. like in some of the Cypress Tupelo swamps. They were found in East Texas and a lot of the longleaf pine forests all the way up into Southern Oklahoma. And you know, during the 1900s, there was extensive trapping, there was extensive poisoning, primarily aimed towards reducing coyotes that happened, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And ocelots were unfortunately a bycatch of that. And also there was, you know, a lot of trapping for their, for their furs because they're mm. absolutely mm. beautiful. Mm -hmm. So by the 1970s, their range had been, you know, reduced to this small area in deep South Texas. Uh, they were mm -hmm. put onto the Endangered Species Act, and today there's two small populations. One of them's on Laguna Atascosa National Wildlife Refuge. The other one's found on a couple of ranches kind of right outside of Port Mansfield. Um, and you're right, the Endangered Species Act, you know, has both both real and uh, perceived um, problems that a lot of landowners who you know would like to engage in ocelot conservation sure sure they don't want to deal with the hassle of having an endangered species on their property because mm -hmm. that can come with you know some of the uh, some prohibitions on their management on um you know building roads or possibly subdividing their place in the future or building right, some right. wind energy or so on and so forth so that's been a big challenge of getting the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and private landowners on the same team, even though everybody wants ocelots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now there's about 80 of them that are known, and it's probably likely that there's twice that many on private lands where official research isn't conducted. Mm -hmm. So one of the big opportunities that, that we have in Texas is not just for ocelots, but for a lot of endangered species is, um, you know, kind of non-disclosure agreements or safe harbor agreements where those private landowners enter into an agreement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where 
they go into it with a baseline of like, we have zero ocelots. We have full jurisdiction to do whatever we want to with our property into the future. And in return, you can conduct research and find out there's ocelots and engage in this ocelot recovery, but with the full understanding that there is absolutely no um, uh, prohibitions that can come over our property is pretty much what a Safe Harbor Act works like. And they've been successful for a variety of species uh, across the country. It's one of our most powerful or one of the most useful tools in recovering endangered species. So there's certainly hope for that. And, you know, what I see that's really optimistic is you're, you're seeing like a lot of private landowners uh, and particularly the Caesar Cl or the East Foundation taking on this role and really trying to, you know, work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and work with Texas Parks and Wildlife and also with the government in Tamaulipas, Mexico, and try to figure out an agreement and figure out a contract where everybody can live with and see if we can't bring back the species, get them off the Endangered Species Act, get the feds out of the management of it and right, let Texans, right. you know, take this cat and, and, and bring him back. That would be an ideal scenario. So, you know, a lot of people will listen to that and they'll say, that doesn't sound like the federal government. Like sign a document that says, yes, come in, but if we find it, we're still not going to do anything to you. So are there people, there ranches, private ranches in Texas right now that have signed up into the safe harbors? Um, non-disclosure agreement and is and it's working yeah there's a lot of safe harbors across texas um for for ocelots it's kind of rare we only have like maybe 10 or 20 landowners or so that that have ocelots uh but there are safe harbor agreements for other species on those properties and there is certainly hope um for that and you know one of the neat things is you've got these different research institutes that that live in texas that have really good relationships with um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they've kind of stepped up and are providing this really important role of providing the science for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with a non-disclosure agreement through that landowner that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service receives that data, but the U.S. Mm -hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't have access to where that data was collected or which ranch had it. So there's okay. there's a lot of things that are that are happening to recover the species that are that are really positive, and um, and yeah, I mean I think, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service one of the one of the challenges of the Endangered Species Act is that a lot of times the management decisions are made through through lawsuits, not through best available correct. science, and that's just an yeah, unfortunate correct. reality of of the ES mm -hmm. of, of the act. And I would love to see some reform of the Endangered Species Act that makes it more provides more carrots than sticks um mm -hmm. to to private landowners that want to who genuinely want to recover endangered species but don't want to deal with the hassle of you know working with the federal government on management decisions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know the the reason I, I started with the ocelot because i felt like when i i watched the film and again i'm fresh out of watching you know i'm 20 hours out of watching the entire film and obviously, you know, being a, dare I say, rudimentary documentarian or cinematographer, whatever we're classified as, you know, I, I always think about message and I always think about like, you know, what are you, what are you trying to convey through the film? And 
it, it no I noticed that there were obviously a certain species that you selected that you're like, look, here's the species. And then what you did was you say, but they, they have issues. There's, there's, there's problems around them, right? You talked about the ocelot, you talked about bison, you talked about the Guadalupe bass, you talked about water quality, urban environments, water use and, and shortages. Uh, you talked about the cost environments. And in each in in each case, you said here's something that is affecting that species. And when it came to mountain lions, that thing that was affecting the species, you noted was trapping and hunting. Well, not actually not even hunting, not even hunting. I'll I'll take that back. Specifically, trappers. That is the the thing that is uh, potentially causing. Um, uh, has a detriment, a potential detriment to mountain lion populations. Um, how about we just start there, Ben, in terms of, maybe I'll just throw out the, the, a thorny question right away, right at the end. Was there the intent when that, that came out of the film to land where we are today with the petition? Um... Or did it come as a result of like you 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 went through the film, you got all the footage, you you tied those two things together, and you're like, oh shit, there's something big here, and we want to move it forward. Yeah. So whenever we whenever we started filming the mountain lion scene, what I really wanted to get was a predation on camera mm. because that's what, like the elk coming down to that waterhole. Yeah, right yeah. We said. Oh, up. by the way. That elk shot. That's badass. I don't know how many people <laughs> recognized what was actually happening in that shot, but the blood was dripping from its velvet into the water. Yeah, that was unbelievable. A sweet shot. Yeah. So, the, so the short answer to your question is 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 no. Like to be very honest, Deep in the Heart was the first wildlife film that I've ever made, and you know to think that I have this grand three year plan on anything in my life is. Um, I like I I wish I could plan out that well but uh you know I've got a 2 year old and a 3 month old and it's difficult for me to figure out what I'm going to have for breakfast much less right. think about 3 years down the road um so whenever we started to film the mountain lion sequence um we decided to do it in the Davis Mountains because you know I've had a bunch of camera traps there in the past and I had a Davis Mountains for everyone West Texas, right? Not yeah, South yeah, Texas. Yeah, in West Texas, the Davis Mountains are amazing. If if you've never been to it, like there's some um, aspen trees on some of the north faces. There's big ponderosa pines. Like it'll really challenge your preconceptions of what Texas is if you haven't gotten to go there. It's this really really cool mountain range. Uh, so inside of the Davis Mountains, you've got these different water holes that. Whenever there's the dry season, which is typically from about like March or so until about June, whenever the monsoons hit, those water holes are, you know, the only source of water. So we tried to set up our camera traps there and to get a predation of a mountain lion coming in and, and hunting an elk or hunting deer or hunting an awdad, uh, just because nobody's ever done that before and that'd be sweet. Mm -hmm. um, so... That that doesn't work out. We ended up mm -hmm. not getting a predation. We only ended up getting, I think, like 25 shots in total of mountain lions over the course of about 14 months. So they were, ex they were extremely difficult to film, much more difficult than ocelots. Sorry, I had a good drink. Um, but the, so whenever we started filming that, we 
put out all these research cameras and we noticed there was this big cat. We ended up jokingly calling him Chuck Norris and Chuck Norris was the biggest mountain lion I've ever seen in Texas. He was probably 160 pounds or so with the full belly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he'd walk up and down these canyons and we'd see him, you know, every 10 days, every two weeks or so, he was, you know, very consistent. So we set up our camera traps around this cat, uh, got a handful of shots. About three months into it or so, we see Chuck Norris walking down the canyon and he was kind of limping down. And whenever he got closer to the trap, we could see that he stepped in a leg hole trap and ripped off all of his toes. Mm. So he didn't have any toes and we saw him for another month or so and then he disappeared. This was a cat that we'd been following for like six months or so, and we assumed that he ended up getting a, caught in a trap that he couldn't get out of, and whenever we got that footage, you know, that was kind of like a, the reality of what these, what these cats kind of live in whenever you start looking into a lot of the science and a lot of the research that has been conducted in West Texas. For example, in Big Men Ranch State Park, they did a study of 16 cats, uh, collared them, and of those 16 cats, 15 of those died in leg hole traps whenever they got out of Big Men Ranch State Park. So that was... Was that the, was that the 2012 study? No. No, that came out. So there was, there was a, a moment, so a little brief history of mountain lions in Texas. In the 1970s, all the other states made mountain lions a game animal, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. they, you know started managing like deer, elk, or a lot of other stuff. That didn't happen in Texas. In the 1990s, there was an effort to um, make mountain lions a game animal as well. Wasn't that like the, the what was it called? The Lion Group or something like that in 1992? The Lion Forum, the Lion Meeting? Yeah, something like that. They had a big meeting in Del Rio. And, That's um, right. That's right. What they realized is like, we don't know a lot about these cats and you know to this day there's still a lot of unknowns about these cats but out of that meeting uh there was some research that was conducted big ben ranch state park was one of those research projects and what they found was that 15 of the 16 cats uh were were caught in leg hold traps outside of the state park boundaries and you know they were obviously killed and then the the 16th one it was shot. It like walked up to some dude uh, while he was putting a boat in the water. And he was like, oh, hell, there's a mountain lion right there like in my space. I'm going to shoot him, which is, you know, completely understandable. Um, mm -hmm. So 15 out of 16 cats got shot or were, were, were trapped out of that study. There was another study that happened in uh, the Davis Mountains in like 2010 up to about 2020 or so. There was about 22 cats that were captured in that one. Very similar results. Uh, they found that there was almost a 50% annual mortality, um, and all the mortality was was due to traps. Um, in fact, you know they they didn't they didn't see any natural causes of death at all in mountain lions ever. Like you know they they pretty much always died in in, in these lead cold traps. And that's, that's very unusual. Like, you know, in all the other states with the exception of Texas, um, you know, there, there isn't mountain lion for mountain lion trapping, or at least it's very targeted mountain lion trapping. And then for all the fur bearing species in Texas and for most 
trapping animals in general, you have these 36 hour trap check standards, which is, you know, the industry ethical standard so that you don't leave animals, you know, sitting in a trap until they die from exposure. And mountain right. lions are specifically exempted from that in Texas. So what, what's happening is if you have, um, you know, a trapper that's targeting mountain lions, they could set out dozens of traps in areas and just, just leave them. And then mountain lion walks through, steps on it, gets trapped, takes days for them to die. And for me, you know, I grew up in an agriculture family. I grew up hunting. Mm -hmm. There's a respect for the animal. There's a respect for that animal's death. That's why we practice marksmanship. That's why we try to deliver good shots. And I find it um, wrong to allow an animal like the mountain lion to languish for days dying from exposure and, and dehydration. I think that's something that should change. Like, I think that we mm -hmm. should have mm -hmm. the same 36 hour trap check standards applied to mountain lions. Like we have with, with all the other animals. So that's a little bit of history of mountain lions. Um, back to our scene, whenever we were filming deep in the heart, you know, this cat that, that we saw that had just ripped off all of his toes. And then we assumed got caught in a trap that, and, and died. We decided to kind of incorporate some of the, um, research and understanding of what's happening to our mountain lions in West Texas into the sequence, because that is honestly the reality that those, those cats face and almost to be honest with the audience of, of what we saw. And that, that especially hit home after we filmed a, a bear that had gotten, that we assume had gotten his foot caught in a trap and, and chewed mm -hmm. his leg off. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that just really sunk home and, you know, it wasn't the scene that we set out to get, but it was the footage that we got and we felt like it was necessary to, um, to incorporate it and to show the realities mm -hmm. of what, what it, mm -hmm. what these mm -hmm. mountain lions face in Texas, rather than, mm -hmm. you know, just some pretty shots and kind of avoid this heart, this harsh truth that we saw whenever we were filming. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of how it all went down. And, you know, for, do you think that? Go ahead, Ben. No, you had one more. I don't want to cut you off. Oh no, I was just going to say for for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, the recovery of the black bears in Texas. In Texas, our black bears were totally extirpated from the state, and then they've slowly begun to make a return in the 1990s and during the 2000s. And there's you know a good population there in Big Bend and the state park and some of the surrounding protected areas, as well as some private lands as well. Um, so, you know, to see a, a bear that had been caught in a trap and, you know, chewed off its leg, that's a, it's a state protected species. This is a, you know, a, one of the, the many concerns of, you know, the lack of trap check regulations is, is significant bycatch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was a, it was very emotive, right? The, the fact that you had that bear coming across three legged bear and, you had the trap itself that you guys had dis disengaged that actually had the, the foot hitting the trap. Um, I, I think I didn't quite get this out of the film. I felt like going into the film that I was going to get a lot more drama in the scene. Sort of the hype was that there was a lot of drama in the scene. Um, Obviously, the music and the narrative and the 
and the scene certain portrayed a, 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 an emotion and a message that you wanted to portray. And as you just said, there were some assumptions, right? I don't think anyone would doubt that a bear that has the missing lower third of its leg missing, more than likely it's a trap that removed that leg. And the only way that a bear would escape it would be essentially chewing itself out of the trap, right? You know, I don't think that that's a far stretch of the imagination, though we don't know at the end of the day, but it's a far, it's, it's more than likely something that's going to happen. Do we, is it a fair assumption that you've made that is that and maybe I don't know if this was an intent of the film or not, but was it a fair assumption that came out of the film that one mountain lions are in peril in Texas, i.e. we need to, you know, we need to do something because their populations seem to be super low. And two, I think I remember Matthew saying something along the lines of thousands of traps being out on the landscape. I, I, it, are those fair assumptions to the entire breadth of mountain lions in South Texas and West Texas? Um, could you repeat the question again, Robbie? I'm not sure. Those, those kind of I guess what I'm question. trying to say is I think they would uh, – maybe I'll break it out. There were some assumptions that were made in the film. And let's start with traps. One of the things that Matthew McConaughey narrated, I think he said it twice, that there were thousands of traps on the landscape for mountain lions. Is that, is that a true statement? I would say that it's true. Yeah, I, it, it's tough because, because you don't know. And, mm. you know, some of the trappers that I've talked to when I was out there, they typically tend to have spreads of like 50 or 60 traps that they keep maintained at a time. And it's not, you know, there's not a ton of professional mountain lion trappers. There, there's not, but... Do you think there are more today than there were 20 years ago? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 34. 20 years ago, I was 14. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I just think in terms of the agricultural change that may have happened in West Texas, like in most places, drought, 70s and 80s, I think there was a drought. Well, West Texas is always in a drought, I guess. Um, that there may have been a shift in agriculture to wildlife in which there wouldn't be as greater need for trapping any longer especially like the coyotes and bobcats and whatnots that tie in with calving season sheep and goats and stuff i think that with some of the mule deer and bighorn and like the importance of hunting in west texas i do think there is i don't think i know for a fact there is a lot of trapping that's happening in west texas for mm -hmm. mountain lions how that compares to you know 20 years ago or 40 years ago mm -hmm. There, there's no there's no data on it there's there's right, not right and you point. know that's one of the things that that we were asking for with our texans for mountain lions group is like let's we've got to get some data on these cats so that we can have trends over time you know it's it's really unfortunate that that we have no data and we're we're asking these questions of you know how many mountain lions were being trapped 20 years ago versus how many mountain lions are being trapped today. And if that number was 200 20 years ago, and if that number was 200 today, that would indicate that the mountain lions are doing just fine. But we, mm -hmm. we don't know. We have no idea mm -hmm. 
as far as there being thousands of traps out on the landscape in both West Texas and South Texas, I think that's completely accurate to say absolutely yes, especially whenever you consider snares in South Texas. Um, whenever they did the, the study in the 90s, there was a lot of snares that were found both on the cats that they were doing the research callers. The cats, you know, are you familiar with snaring practices in Texas? Yeah, yeah. Well, not not in Texas, but did I just say Texas? Like in my strange American accent? No, Texas? Yeah. No, I'm familiar with snaring from a, an African perspective, which is very similar. Okay. So in Texas, a lot of our high fence ranches and a lot of the goat fences where it's difficult for animals to actually cross through the fence, there'll be this uh, tunnel that game animals go through and you'll yep. put snares on those tunnels and they're primarily targeting uh, uh, coyotes and feral hogs. That's the, the purpose of those snares. So, you know, mountain lions will go through there. They'll get caught in the snare. They'll die. Gotcha. That's something that's more um, South Texas based than than West Texas based. And just for clarification, you know, in South Texas, I would say 99.9% of those snares are not intended for mountain lions, but mountain mm -hmm. lions definitely get caught in those snares. That is 100% a fact. So do bears. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, are there thousands of traps across Texas that could catch a mountain lion? Yeah, I'll stand by that statement 100%. Do you um, what is your thought? What are your thoughts to the mountain lion population? Again, I don't think we have good data. Completely agree with you. Do you think the mountain lion population today is doing better than it did twenty years ago? Again, I'm just this is just complete assumptions and hypo hypothetical because we just don't have the data. And maybe it's an unfair question because we don't have that we don't have that data. I don't know. Robbie, I I honestly don't. Um, it's tough because which is your which is the first point to your petition, right? Yeah, we've got to we need the we've data. We've got to get some we data. We need the data, and you know, I I don't know from some of the people that I've talked to, and trust me, I've talked to a lot of people about this issue. You know, like I've got a buddy in Dilly, and they've always seen mountain lions on their place on the Frio river and they haven't seen them in 10 years and they haven't gotten any on their show cameras and they've got, you know, 8,000 acres and 40 feeders and camera traps on all those feeders. They've, they've never seen it. They've, they haven't gotten a cat in over 10 years. And that's mm. inside of that area that a lot of people say is, you know, the South Texas core population. Personally, um, whenever I was in college, I, a guided hunts on a ranch just east of Laredo for four years during the fall. And that's also in that core South Texas, you know, supposedly mountain lion area. And I was running camera traps on all the feeders as well as on some washes. And for four years, I never got a photo of, of a mountain lion and you can't tell me, I don't know how to camera trap. Um, <laughs> you know, doing all of our ocelot filming, ne never saw mm -hmm. a mountain lion in South Texas. So you've got this um, anecdotal evidence of some people who are who, who haven't seen them at, at all in areas where they used to be. And then you've got other people, like I've got a friend in Eagle Pass who is saying that they've, they've probably got more mountain lions now than they have had in... 100%. Uh, in, you know, historically... Um, yeah. and it's one of those, I'm so glad you said that because that's the, that's the catch that we're in, right? That's the conundrum we're in, Ben. Yeah. It's like that how there's many... a bunch of anecdotal evidence on this side of the coin 
that says we haven't seen mountain lions in forever. And then you have anecdotal evidence on this side of the coin that says we've got more mountain lions than we've ever had. Right. And I really hope that they are right and I am wrong. I genuinely hope that. But there's no way to know. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the trends that are happening in Texas, we're looking at increasing from 30 million to 50 million people over the next 25 years. So by the time my kids are my age, you know, I feel bad for them how many human beings there's going to be. And then there's also just a tremendous amount of fragmentation that's occurring, particularly in the South Texas population. And whenever you see those 50,000 acre ranches or 20,000 acre ranches get chopped up into 320 acre ranchettes that are all high fenced, many of which have snares down there at the bottom, all of a sudden you come across a portion of that area that's no longer um, really suitable for for habitats. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. another concern that I have, Robbie, is... Uh, a, a border fence that's going to be built or could possibly be built over the next couple of decades from Laredo to Del Rio. You know, the previous administration obviously wanted to build a fence down there. Governor Abbott's putting in some fence. So you've got about a quarter of that area where there's interchange between Mexico and the United States. And we don't know if that's going to continue to happen over the next, um, you know, couple administrations. We We just don't know. That country down there, you can realistically put in a border fence along that Mines Road, um, you know, just on the U.S. side of the Rio Grande. In West Texas, you can't realistically put in a a border wall or a border fence because of the canyon. So I'm not really Mm -hmm. concerned about mountain lion migration there. But for South Texas, absolutely. If you had, you know, an impenetrable barrier that halted migration from Mexico, and then you had the you know, fragmentation of landscapes that we're seeing down there. And then if you add to that, the level of mortality that they experienced during the different studies, we could possibly have a situation over the next couple of decades where that population in South Texas could become so low that it becomes, you know, um, not able to, to persist. Yeah, non-viable. Yeah, no. we could lose that population. Yep. And, and nobody wants that. Like, that would be a yeah, and really I don't, I don't bad think thing. The, um, the trapping and hunting community wants it either. Yeah, like that's the worst case scenario. And then you know, like I've just seen what happens with with ocelots whenever you have the federal government get involved in something. Whenever you hit that point where, like, and it, like it's so much better to have preventative health care than to go to the emergency room whenever you're dying. Whenever mm-hmm. it comes to wildlife conservation. And that's what I want to see happen with mountain lions is like to put in the the data, the research to figure out how many cats do we have? What is a good number to have that ensures them a future? And what kind of safeguards can we put into place that, you know, we know we're not going to lose this animal or have it, you know, continually further extirpated across Texas. And, you know, that was the foundation of the principles that we put into our um, our Texans for Mountain Lions coalition. And for the most part, a lot of people agree with those, you know, the, the argument against it is, is the slippery slope of like, you know, what are, what are, where does it stop? But for the most part, we've gotten a lot of support from a lot of people in the hunting con in the hunting community, because, you know, it's, it's applying the, the seven tenets of the North American model of conservation, 
wildlife is an animal that's held in the public trust. Wildlife is to be managed by the state agency and wildlife is to be managed using data. And right mm -hmm. now, none of those things apply to mountain lions in Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it, it would be someone that is very, very fringe that does not agree with point number one on your petition, which is we need better data. We need better data so that we can scientifically manage the population. Not even just manage it. I, I took that one to another step to just understand the population. What do we have? Do we have a ton of mountain lions or do we have a, a small amount of mountain lions? And let the number, let the data dictate what the next steps are, right? I think everyone is on the same page with that. And you're on that, you're on that page, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We should know how many mountain lions we have, 100%, or, or, or even a rough estimate. Because right now, the South Texas population of mountain lions, we honestly do not know if there's 25 or 150. Yeah, we, we, right. we don't exactly. know. Exactly. I think then, and, I, and I'm going to butcher the numbers. I apologize, Ben, in terms of, I think you had six points. Yeah, go And ahead. I think a lot of people took, uh, took issue with, I think it was bullet point number five, which was like, this is what, how many need to be taken, which really goes against number one, yeah. which is, well, you don't really have the data to say that, but I understand why you would say it, because it's almost like what you, and correct me here again if I'm wrong here, you are like, look, we don't want to ban it. We're not calling for a ban of trapping and mountain lion uh, removal until we get the data. Maybe point number five is a compromise here to say you can still do it, but let's put a limit on what you're doing. Yeah, you know, Robbie, we've I'm new at this. I'm a I'm a I'm a filmmaker. Like I've I'm not knowledgeable in how this kind of stuff works. And whenever we came up with that point number five and, and what that point number five is or what it states, just so you know people are aware, is our coalition uh, which I'm a part of, which is called Texans for Mountain Lions, we came up with six things that we would like Texas Parks and Wildlife to consider enacting for mountain lions to ensure that they have a future. The first one is conduct research, uh, figure out where they're at. Another one is to have harvest reporting so that we can see you know, what the trends are for um, harvest over time, kind of like to your point of like, you know, was there more mountain lions being trapped 20 years ago than there are today? We let me do stop not you on that. point number two. Yeah, let me let me point put something into point number two as you're going through this because this will be a good way to do it. Okay, all right, we'll um, go through the whole thing. I'm going to pull it up on my so, laptop just to make sure. No, I have that's all fine. That. I, I really enjoyed what you said earlier. Well, I, I have enjoyed everything you've said, um, but you specifically talked about preventative, you know, being able to sort of stop the federal government coming in and, and almost putting preventative measures in place. Um, do you think that point number two would be better received if, if it was voluntary versus mandatory, i.e. almost like an incentive-based system? Because really, at the end of the day, when you step back even further from it, across all policy, you're either using a carrot or you're using a stick. And mandatory typically comes with a stick versus a carrot that is, hey, report your mountain lions and we'll, we'll throw you in the hat for, you know, you can be the next voiceover for Ben Masters film. Yeah, so we, we actually have... That was a joke, Ben Masters. We actually have voluntary harvest reporting in Texas right now. 
that's one of the things that came out of that 1990s um, realization that we don't know how many mountain lions there are. So over the last 20 years, Texas Parks and Wildlife has been accumulating this voluntary data that has mm-hmm. come in. Mm-hmm. And if we use that voluntary data, the amount that has come in, we should be 100% concerned about mountain lions in Texas because there are none being harvested in the state. Nobody's reporting them. So this idea that people are going to like, one, know that they, that that opportunity exists and two, know actually how to do it. Um, that's already been tried here and it, and it hadn't worked. So, you know, having harvest. So the database has zero, zero people have reported mountain lions. No, take- that, that is not accurate. There, there, there is okay. mountain lions and, and there, but, but it's, it's an extremely, but it's, low. it's an extremely but it's low, low number. And most of okay. it came from uh, the state mammologist has some relationships with some trappers out in West Texas that voluntarily, you know, gave up that information okay. and, and, and great okay. for them. Like, you know, that's wonderful. But, you know, it's just not, it's just not realistic. And mm-hmm. how would you mm-hmm. know, how would you be able to know if it was 5% that were being reported or 50%? Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. there's, there's no way to have that data. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at mountain lion management in other states, you have harvest reporting across the country. Like, it's not something that's new or novel or unusual. Uh, there's harvest reporting in pretty much all the Western states. And that's how those states know, you know, when they've reached their quota, that's how they know, um, you know, some, sure. some age demographics. Sure. It's just a norm within mountain lion um, management in, in the world to have harvest reporting. So like, I, I understand that it would be nice to have everything be voluntary, but come on, man, that's not, that's not realistic. Um, well, especially uh, the only reason I say it is, and I went beyond voluntary. I went to sort of incentive based with a carrot because of how just prickly this is, right? And I, you're absolutely right. There's there's harvest reporting uh, in lots of different states, but even in, in Mississippi, the state that I used to come from, you didn't have to. It was voluntary, you know, for turkey harvest reporting. And only when they started recognizing that turkeys were on the decline, they were like, oh, shit, let's put mandatory in place because we need to actually know. Um, and I, I just feel like there's, because of it being so prickly, even in the turkey scenario in Mississippi, put in an incentive in where people are like, oh, yeah, I want to report because there is something there. Um, and maybe being the voiceover actor for... Your, you know, your film, which was a joke, by the way, earlier. Hey, Matt uh, McConaughey it, it, is pretty tough to beat, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we can hold some auditions. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. I, 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 I guess I'm always looking for a compromise, right? I'm always looking for like, what is a better solution? Um, and maybe mandatory is it? I mean, so, all right. Let's keep let's keep working down our list here. Go um, ahead. Another let's go. thing. And, and, and again, that, that our coalition wants, and, and this is not something that is common, but right now, now does this canned hunting stuff actually occur? Yes. Do they trap y- them live yes. and then move them? Yes. No way. Yes. I have heard from multiple people that this is something that, a, that an individual in Fort Stockton has done with multiple cats from, from credible sources. And he's selling the hunt or is he doing it for friends or? Again, I have not talked directly to this person, but you've spent enough time in Africa to know that there are 
some shitheads that will sell can hunts for lions and that, that it is perfectly legal to do it in Texas as well. It is perfectly legal to catch a mountain lion in a cage trap, hold it, collect urine off of it, collect feces off of it, which is very common or not very common, which does happen with, uh, especially with trappers because they want, you know, fresh urine and fresh feces. So they have mm -hmm. this live mountain, this live mountain lion, and you got, you know, a hunter that wants to come out and run dogs and go on a fair chase mountain lion hunt. They don't know that that cat's caught in a cage, but dry land mountain lion hunting is very difficult. You can run out, you can let that mountain lion go. You can come back an hour later with dogs. They're going to catch that fresh scent. They're going to treat that cat. And then the hunter's never going to know if that cat was, was wild or not. Again, this is not common. It is, it is not, but it's one of those things where I think it's good to be preventative before it becomes an issue. And also, mm -hmm. you know, I think this is something that everybody can and, and, and should get behind here. Um, like, I don't see why anybody would want to have canned hunting of, of mountain 100%. lions. And it, and it no, is something that numerous people have told me that are very credible sources in West Texas has existed. Again, it's, it's not common, though. Yeah, and look, it, let's be honest. It, it's a massive black eye. It's a massive black eye on hunters and hunting if that came to pass. And yes, there are bad apples out there. There are bad seeds out there. There are bad actors out there that, as you, you know, to your, to your source, could be or are participating in this activity. And unfortunately, you know, they're not representative of, of, of the typical hunting community or hunters. So I can't, I, I agree with you. I don't see why someone would be for that and keeping it on the books. I guess it's not technically on the books. It's just what you're saying is that there's no delineation of it not being illegal, right? It's almost like, oh, maybe I don't even know this question. Can you trap a, a white-tailed deer in a, in a cage and move it and release it and hunt it in Texas? No. Not without an MLD3 permit and to go through like everything that's necessary because you get like CWD issues, you get a variety of problems, okay. but absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You cannot just go capture a, a, a deer and take it somewhere else and let it go and, and go hunt the deer. Um, but you came with mountain lions. And it's like, again, it's one of those things that's especially accepted for mountain lions um, in Texas. And then, you know, that goes straight into the, the fourth thing that we're asking for as a coalition, which is the trap checks. And that is, again, mountain lions are specifically excluded from the fur bearing regulations. They're, you know, the standard 36 hour trap check is, uh, required for them. And you can just set out a trap, catch a mountain lion. It may take three days to die. It may take eight days to die. And I take issue with that. I think that they mm -hmm. should have the same standards as everything else just to reduce, um, you know, unnecessary Are suffering for other for fur bearers in Texas. What's that? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Are the other, the other regulations for fur bearers in the state of Texas are 36 hours and less. Correct. Yeah. I, you know, it's part and parcel of the, the ethos of, you know, if, if, if if you're trapping coons and possums and coyotes and whatnots and and i've i've had i've had trappers come out and say like yeah man like we should definitely have those 36 hour trap checks like everything else it's you know it's not a good look 
to mm. you know have animals dying for days on end like it's just this is not a good look um so another thing that we're requesting texas parks and wildlife to do is to form a, a an advisory group a stakeholder advisory group with cattle raisers with sheep and goat with you know a mountain lion advocate with a um, you know, somebody from Texas Wildlife Association, somebody from Texas Trophy Hunters Association, somebody from, you know, the deer breeders, like this really big trappers, mix. everyone. Yeah, trappers, everyone. A big mix of people that all, that all can agree, like, we we should not have, we should definitely not lose the mountain lion in Texas. What can we do to ensure that it continues to have a, a viable future? while also respecting, you know, landowners' rights, while respecting um, the importance of the hunting economies in, you know, conservation and for ranching and for um, for houndsmen and, you know, the traditions that, that are surrounding all mountain lions. Like, everybody should have a voice in that. Everybody mm-hmm. should be, you know, having that voice to Texas Parks and Wildlife Department because right now none of those voices are, are represented really. Um, so that was the other, one of the, one of the things that we asked Texas Parks and Wildlife was to, to create that stakeholder advisory group and then, you know, listen to them. And then the last one, the one that you just talked about of, of, of having a quota of five cats in South Texas until further research is conducted. That was one of the things that our group originally stood for. And like Mm -hmm. you just mentioned, the science doesn't say how many cats there are in South Texas. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. we got that number of five because five is the or five percent is the recommended amount in some states for you know sustainable mountain lion harvest, which or it's actually between like five and twenty five percent because there's a lot of concerns about the South Texas population. We we put in five to say like, Hey, we acknowledge that hunting is important for mountain lions. We're not trying to stop hunting anywhere. We just want to put a quota in place until we can do the research that is necessary to say like, this is a viable population. We actually shouldn't have a quota at all, or, you know, we should reduce it to two or we should up it to 15. Like Mm -hmm. we don't know. Robbie, since, since our group has gone from, you know, over the, the course of several months, we, we have dropped that position. Mm-hmm. We, we, mm-hmm. we do know, we no longer say, or no longer state that we have a position of a, of a five cat quota in South Texas. And the reason gotcha. why is because we don't know how many cats there are. Right. That's exactly right. what you to said. Point number one, right? To point number one. Yeah, to point number one. So we have we have changed that position statement. It is it is no longer a position of Texans for Mountain Lions, and instead we've we've changed it to manage by region, to acknowledge that you know Texas is diverse. We should have mm-hmm. you know management for for different regions, and you know the same factors that apply in West Texas shouldn't mm-hmm. apply to South mm-hmm. Texas. And you're right. Like I understand Craig's. Um, a suspicion of the group after we came out with that number of five, I understand it because it's not based in data. And if I could go back in time and revoke that position statement, I would. But at the same time, there are very, very legitimate concerns about the South Texas population. And um, that's that was the root of where that came from. Sure, sure. And uh, so anyways, that, that's to answer your yeah. question and to kind of clarify yeah. uh, where we're at with that. Well, this podcast is coming out 
the day after the Texas uh, Parks and Wildlife Commission hearing, in which the petition will be discussed. Um, we do know that Texas Parks and Wildlife, correct me if I'm wrong here, they have come out and denied the petition, right, Ben? Correct. Yeah. So we, we submitted those six things that I just discussed, um, like in early, I don't know, like April or so. And, yep. Uh, we actually tried to like get people to talk about it then, but it kind of took snowball effect. Uh, and then Texas Parks and Wildlife Department de declined the petition. They said, you know, we're not going to do these things. We're not going to ask our commissioners to vote on it until the commissioners have the opportunity to meet with all the other folks that yep. live where yep. mountain lions live so that they can get fully informed and fully debriefed on, you know, mm -hmm. what is the situation. And honestly, we, we ex completely expected that to happen. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, but they did come out with the working group idea, acknowledging that that was something that is, something that they want to do right yeah they've said that the, the, that a working group is something that they want to do but i think you know they're going to get debriefed on it next week um and uh and that's great you know i think it's really good to but but what what our group hopes listen man i'm i'm a filmmaker i don't want to spend time like doing this because it's extremely time consumptive it's extremely emotionally draining it's a hard topic and what I really hope happens is Texas Parks and Wildlife like does one of these things and just puts Texas on a path to where we ensure that we have mountain lions and that they have viable populations because I, I just don't want to be doing this for years on end. It's very mm -hmm. time consumptive mm -hmm. and, you know, advocacy isn't really my jam. I like to make movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh but yeah, I no, I, I'm, you I'm nailed hopeful. it, dude. I'm telling you, you nailed it. And I think that again, if if you allow me to summarize, sure, you made a very passionate film of something that's very near and dear to your heart. One of those pieces just happens to be mountain lions. You care for mountain lions. You want to see them perpetuate on the landscape. You want them to be sustained on the landscape. But in order for us as hunters and non-consumptive users for us to understand how those species are to be managed we need good science we need good data i'll take science out of it actually because greg pointed that out i'll say we need good data on understanding the population and we need good science to track that data over time to understand trends in the population Correct? Did I summarize that correctly? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And and to also, if there is trends that are alarming, and there is trends that say this species is of concern of potentially extirpation or dropping below a minimum management level, there should be management that provides those safeguards for that animal to stay viable. Like you know, to add on to, to your your statement there. And I'll take that add-on 100%. And I'll, I'll say this, that my statement and your add-on, that the people on both sides of the coin are at, are at the same position. Sweet. There's no difference. There's no difference. There shouldn't be a difference. 
if you're a hunter, if you're a trapper, you want to see the animal perpetuate, you want to see the animal sustained, you want to see a healthy wildlife population. All hunters are interested in that. All trappers are interested in that. And to be able to do that, you need good data and you need you need good data to then allow the science to demonstrate, you know, population models and population trajectories over time. And I think that you will hear that from both sides of the discussion, not the issue, the discussion. Yeah, and I, I think whenever you have something as controversial as mountain lions or honestly any predator management, there's a lot of emotions. And it's also important to recognize that the people that are most impacted by predators live furthest away from the locations in which the management of those predators is decided. And, and it's, it's unfortunate to me that the, the proposals that, that we've placed down, many of which I think are, are, are very realistic and, and hopefully respectful to the hundreds of conversations that we've had with, you know, ranchers and outfitters and a variety of different folks that are impacted by mountain lions. I hope people recognize that we're asking for, for the accumulation of, of data. We are not asking for seasons. We are not asking for, um, you know, regulations that are banning houndsmen or anything like that. I think it's very unfair to categorize our group as being, you know, anti-hunting or anti-trapping. And, you know, some of the most vehement and vocal um, criticism that I've received over these proposals have been from my friends in the environmental and in the wildlife filmmaking community who are looking at these things and saying, what you're proposing is the worst regulations for mountain lions anywhere in the United States. Why aren't you asking for seasons? Why aren't you asking for a prohibition in some areas to allow for recolonization? Why aren't you asking for, you know, more aggressive regulations? And mm -hmm. like, I see where they're coming from. But mm -hmm. the reason why is because the things that we wrote down, we hope is a realistic starting place for people to be able to, to come together mm -hmm. and find common ground and recognize like, we can't just take the, you know, future existence of this animal for, for granted, uh, especially the South Texas population. You know, we should have some data. We should have some management because how foolish would we feel if 20 years, 30 years down the line, we're still having the exact same conversation of has trapping increased or decreased over the 20 years? Has mortality increased or decreased? Like to have no information about an animal as magnificent as the mountain lion in our state in the year 2022 is crazy. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think your point is a really good one in that I think the, the side that is against you, because you actually just described another side that's against you, the side that's against you from the hunting community only sees you as that as that anti-hunting, anti-trapping, you know, whatever they want to label you as. But what you just described is, is what 
I think everyone actually forgets because you're not. We're not in that circle. We don't. Um, we don't. We're not in those. Those. We're not in those circles. We're not in those community circles. Those social media circles, whatnot, in which there is the other side that is slamming you this way, which is the true anti-hunting, true anti-trapping, very, very environmental. You're not doing enough. And I think that's a good point, Ben. I mean, it's, I know for a fact it's impacted my business by people scrolling through my Instagram feed and seeing me with, you know, hauling elk out of the mountains on horseback. And, you know, that I live in this environmental world. I live in this, this wildlife conservation filmmaking world. And, um, you know, there's, there's cons to, to being a hunter and, and existing in that space. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just try to be true to myself to and, and what I believe try. in. You know, it's so damn hard being myself. I don't really have enough brain width to try to be somebody else. No, that's a good point. It's a good point. Well, not not the the lack of brain width is not a good point, but the the the, the middle the middle that you're towing right now. Um, ben, thank you, thank you for allowing me to have this conversation with you, man. I know there are lots of others that could have had it. Um, and uh, I'm appreciative to be able to be in the position to have conversations that allow the opportunity to listen. Well, I'm going to pass and it back to you and give you the golden wand, Robbie. Ta-da! Here you go. You have it. If mm-hmm. you were the king of Texas right now and you could mm-hmm. create your mountain lion management plan, what would you do? Well, I know that Texas has a lot of money. I know that. And I know that science, the collection of data, it costs money. And the collection of data and the more confidence you have in the data means that your sample size needs to be large. Because of the sensitivity that is around mountain lions, someone will pick apart the data that is collected if your sample size is small and your spatial area in which you're collecting that data is small. So you need to be able to put it over a large ground, large spatial area in both South Texas and West Texas. And you need to have confidence in, you know, hiring the best carnivore biologist that money can buy to do population modeling on the data that is collected. So that's where I would start. I would put a all sort of all press you know, press full court on collecting the data as, as best as I possibly can. And if since I'm the king here, right? Um I would if I had the if I had the funding through Blood Origins, we would pay for it. If I had the money, I'd pay for it. I'd give it to Texas Parks and Wildlife and say, this money is going to collect as much data as you possibly can in the next two years. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in the next six months. It's going to take a sustained effort. And again, you need multiple years worth of data to be able to do that. Number one. Number two, I would I would want to listen to the trappers specifically and the farmers specifically, the people that are on the ground the most, to say like what kind of information can we gather that can be verified to be included in that that data. But that data has to be 
And the reason I say it the way that I say it is because it has to be able to be repeatable so that you can get the trend analysis that you're looking for. Um, I think that the, the whole canned hunting scenario is certainly something that is just like, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I think that standards uh, for trapping, especially when it comes to what it looks like, because I'm in the perception changing business. That's why I like to have conversations like this. I'm in the perception changing business. And if you have mountain lions dying of starvation or heat exhaustion in a trap, that's not a good look. But I'll also say that that happens with other animals too and we need to address that as well in that there is this thing that we love animals we love wildlife even though we trap them because we know that we need to manage the populations uh in a, a, a sort of balance with with other things the other thing that i would do since i'm the king is is there something else that we can do to increase the ability of predators to live on the landscape, which to me is rooted in habitat and rooted in prey. So I'd like to look at that too. Like, where are, the, where are these habitats? What are the prey bases? And is there an opportunity to to do to increase both to again have more mountain lions on the landscape, allow opportunities for trapping, allow opportunities maybe for hunting in the future but to sustain the wildlife population um, to the best that it could be. How'd I do? Pretty good. I think you might as well just go ahead and join our coalition with all those things. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Nah. It's, uh, I, I say now, nah, but I totally agree with data. I totally agree with science behind wildlife management and i agree that everyone needs to come around a table and they need to talk and they need to discuss and they need to discuss their positions and they need to discuss their perspectives because a landowner that wants you know has agricultural domestic you know livestock or has a um, wildlife that is generating value and revenue from a hunting perspective has to have a voice because there's a balance that's required when it comes to predator management. Otherwise, we're in the scenario where, you know, if if there's take, then is there an incentive because there's a value-based system on, on that land? And we have to be able to... We have to be able to hear those voices and hear, and hear them for what they are, right? And what they what their livelihoods are tied to, and what their lifestyles are tied to. Well, man, I have to say that I'm very grateful to get to come on and and talk about this for a full hour. And I'm also really glad that you interviewed Greg because he's somebody that disagrees with me on mountain lions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and is able to disagree with me in a way that is very uh, understandable. And I have tremendous respect uh, for him and and what he says. And I'm I'm really excited to to listen to his podcast. And I think having discussions like the one that we're having that take full hours where people get to really, you know, explain their positions and, and what they're standing for 
is kind of like what you said is, you know, getting people to talk about it, getting people to hear from everybody's side. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that I do believe our, our film Deep in the Heart has um, inspired a lot of those conversations to, to happen. And um, I hope that, you know, that they continue to happen. And, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now, there's still mountain lions out cruising out through the South Texas brush and, and out there in West Texas. And, you know, again, I really hope that I'm wrong about the concerns that I have with mountain lions and that, you know, the anecdotal evidence that some people bring up about how they're doing better than ever before. I truly believe or I truly hope that they're correct. I just haven't personally experienced that. And that's not the anecdotal evidence that I've seen. But regardless, <laughs> anecdotal <laughs> evidence could also be used to show that the Bigfoot population in East Texas is on the increase. And the, the Black <laughs> Panther population across Texas is thriving. There has to be good data. And there's not right now. Right. But the data that right. does exist, which is expensive and took several years to acquire, and for large carnivores is fairly robust data. The data that does exist indicates extremely high mortality. And it, it shows genetic isolation in South Texas, and it shows some concerns that we should take seriously. And um, hopefully these discussions and whatever happens over the next few years will uh, address some of those concerns and we'll, we'll learn more. Perfect, my man. I look forward to doing this again, okay? Yeah, we should do a deep dive into ocelots. Uh, I would love to do one on ocelots because it's so exciting. You know, you know, mountain lions, this is controversial, but literally everybody can get behind ocelots. It's a 30-pound cat. That's beautiful. That eats mice. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> All right, when your film is done, I'll come into South Texas. I'll watch it. You can pop me some popcorn and we'll podcast about it. Oh, right? hell yeah, man. We'll go on a brush crawl and get covered in ticks and thorns. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, dude, we went into Tamaulipas to go see the source population. And what blows my mind is, um, like, literally an hour and a half south of the Texas border, we were getting unbelievable jaguar footage. Just crazy bonkers 180 pound huge jaguars it was like holy shit this is like south texas 150 years ago this is nuts no yep, pigs yep. no pigs down yep. there but there's plenty of jaguars <laughs> it's too cool man definitely next time brother <laughs> thanks appreciate you robbie have a great day okay we're gonna close a little differently don't go anywhere flip to the next podcast as you just heard one side of the story as it relates to mountain lions in Texas. The very next podcast is the other side of the story as it relates to mountain lions in Texas. Go listen to it right now.